Hi there, thanks so much for listening again and thank you for all your support since we began this podcast back in July 2020. As we approach episode 700, we want to send you racing for just £10 and we've teamed up with Sandown Park to give you the opportunity to get tickets for Imperial Cup Day next Saturday, the 11th of March. There's no tricks, there's no gimmicks, they are yours. You just need to order them and put in a promo code. So head to the jockeyclub.co.uk forward slash Sandown forward slash events and the link is pinned to my Twitter profile at Nick Luck for half price tickets. You can get as many as four of them. There are 500 going, but they are running out fast. So do log on as soon as you can. Saturday, the 11th of March, Imperial Cup Day at Sandown Park and enter the code NL10, NL10 when prompted. And we will see you there. It's a great day's racing. You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by the Breeders' Cup. Good morning, welcome to the show. Friday, March 3rd. Dawn breaking here in Miami where I landed last night in advance of the Fountain of the East Stakes at Gulfstream tomorrow. The beginning of the 2023 Kentucky Derby Trail for the Breeders' Cup juvenile winner Forte, part of a very strong hand for Todd Pletcher. What's been happening back home in the run-up to the Cheltenham Festival? Big news this morning is that Jack Kennedy will miss the Cheltenham Festival, the top flight Irish rider who was set to ride so many of leading trainer Gordon Elliott's horses has lost his battle with fitness after yet another leg fracture. That means that Davy Russell, his own well-being permitting, will ride many of the Elliott horses together with Jordan Gameford. The Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board has released its annual report, not from 2022, but 2021. Better late than never, you might say. Lydia Hislop and I will be poring over that, and there are some really interesting uh, things to come out of that in a few moments' time. But first, Paul Nichols, the 13 times champion trainer, has fired a pretty brutal broadside at the British Horse Racing Authority. He has said in a Betfair exclusive preview night, a release of which went out a few moments ago, that he's disappointed with the way the BHA have handled the whip rules. He says they've shot themselves in the foot. People at the BHA need to take a real look at themselves. Are they doing the right thing? I think they're letting us down. It's not a welfare issue. We need a bit of backbone. The BHA need a bit of backbone instead of appeasing the wrong people. Nothing simple with them these days, which is sad because they've got a tough job to do. They need to take a good long look at themselves and see what they're doing towards the industry. And they need to be a little more proactive at getting things right. I've been livid, says Nichols all along with the timing of it. Lydia Hislop is with me now. Uh, she's not livid, but Paul Nichols is. Uh, and Lydia, that's uh, that's quite a quite a broadside from the champion trainer. Yeah, they they are strong words, but I think they are reflective of a, a wider feeling out there. Um, I feel like the um, the wildebeest are beginning to move on the Serengeti. So you feel that the the senior figures within the BHA are co- coming under increasing pressure from you know, the the other major constituents in the sport the the trainers and the and the what we used to call the horsemen i suppose yeah i think i think that was plain in terms of the reaction to chief executive um julie harrington's speech at the asian racing conference that didn't 
seem to go down very well in Britain. The timing of so many members of the top brass of the British Horse Racing Authority being there whilst the whip rules were going live. I don't think that uh, looked good objectively from, from the outside. And I think that there is now a drip, drip, drip effect on the, all the various crises that are facing the sport and a feeling that the sport is not well prepared to deal with them. Mm. Is there anything that the BHA can do now to assuage the concerns of, of Nichols, for example? Well, they need they need the numbers I mean, in terms of the whip. And I, I, he's, he's particularly uh, zeroing in on the timing of the whip rules here. They need a good Cheltenham Festival. I think I think they need uh, the participants, the riders um, to uh, perform well under the new structure of the rules and not have a load of bans popping up and even worse disqualifications the following week when the Whip Review Committee looks at it. Uh, and, uh, you know, they need the number of uh, infringements to, to go down um, and proof that uh, riders in general are... Um, beginning to adapt to these new rules. I mean, I know that Chris Cook has written something recently in the Racing Post suggesting that he feels that the BHA are beginning to win this particular battle. I think there are still some significant scrimmages ahead. Well, clearly they're going to be anxious moments between now and the end of the Cheltenham Festival and beyond, you would have thought, for all the reasons we've discussed pretty extensively on this podcast. Well, now, Aintree will, be, Aintree will be another flashpoint, won't it, Nick? I mean, you know, yeah. it, it, it's just what is a major hurdle, but Aintree will be another one and just as big. The Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board have published their annual report, Lydia. It's 2023, isn't it, this year? <laughs> I'm speaking yes, to you now in 2023. 2023. I was just checking because they've published their annual report for yeah, 2021. It's come out 2021. It's absolutely ridiculous. Signed off by the uh, controller and auditor general on the 21st of December 2022. Um, the most notable uh, paragraph in this um, document, in this 75-page document, is about the former CEO Dennis Egan's early retirement payments. Would you like me to read it all to you? Go on. 11th of May 2021, the then CEO announced by email that early retirement and voluntary redundancy would be available to IHRB staff. Conditions for eligibility for early retirement were outlined in a separate scheme description. Early retirement payments to those admitted to the scheme would be based on length of service, subject to certain maximum levels. The scheme stated that maximum payment to any individual would not exceed 104 weeks of salary and or an equivalent redundancy calculation. There will be no exception to this. The CEO subsequently applied for and was granted early retirement. A formal agreement was concluded on the 11th of June 2021, providing for the termination of his employment with effect from the 30th of September. The terms of the agreement included a termination payment of €384,870, which was 58% more than the amount payable if the scheme conditions had been applied as stated. <laughs> Accordingly, the terms agreed with the former CEO were, to a significant extent, an exception to the provisions of the board's early retirement scheme. What do you make of that? That's a heavy understatement. That's a heavy understatement. The to a significant extent, isn't it? It is, and and it's been it's raised more than an eyebrow or two uh, amongst those who've taken the time to read this um, this annual report. I, I realise that it's not going to be bedtime reading for many of you, which is why we've been praising it for you. Um, now, I haven't been in touch with the IHRB about a number of things in the report, and they said that the additional payment over and above the maximum payment. Uh, so the extra 58% came uh, as a discretionary payment from the Turf Club. The Turf Club is now not what the Turf Club was. It's not 
the IHRB. It's just a, the shell of what remains of an old institution, the Turf Club. And the Irish National Hunt Steeplechase Committee had given this uh, discretionary payment, 58% above, um, for, for long and uh, distinguished service, and that no public funds had been used in order to, to finance this. Is that an adequate explanation? Not really. Uh, it's reflective of wider society in many ways, isn't it? In that it is a, a different rule for chief executives and people who operate at that level in terms of the payments that they received as compared to the ordinary person. And this is a malaise that can be reflected certainly across Britain. And uh, this seems to be um, something that uh, is not unknown in Ireland based on this as well. Um, so in that context, you know, you know, plus ça change. Um, in terms of this in particular, we're obviously talking about outgoing chief executive Dennis Egan, who um, took early retirement uh, against a landscape of uh, troubled, uh, trouble, a troubled disciplinary landscape, I think, and a lot of shortcomings in the regulatory area, which the Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board has since been attempting um, to a greater or lesser degree to shore up and to do better in. And... I, you know, it does. Does this does this look good? Of course, it doesn't. It's it's obvious that that that, that nobody is going to think that this that this looks good. Um, and uh, you know, the fact that it was it was so extraordinary compared to other people people's uh, employment and early retirement record that just leaves a, a bad taste in the mouth. There are many, many notable points in in this document, and uh, credit to the IHRB for doing it, even if it is really quite late i did ask a spokesperson there when we might expect the annual report for 2022 and you'll be pleased to know the answer is before the end of 2023 can i can we i mean this is i mean this is just completely ridiculous isn't it and uh, i know that one of the reasons given previously that this that for the late publication of the 2021 report was that this was the first ever annual report and they wanted to do things differently and and there's a lot of but covid but covid all the way through the report but seriously you know this is march 2023 and this is a 2021 report and just to say it's a commit to sometime in 2023 that the 2022 report will be published again isn't good enough this isn't the this is the digital age we don't need to wait for these for these glossy end of year reports that used to be churned out by every organization and every sub organization to prove that they are meeting their own targets um I, I, I these days you could just have a monthly update of these figures why why don't we have that we we should be able to have constant uh very short time lag monitoring of all these key areas and this simply isn't good enough so you know another another negative from this report uh, there were a number of recommendations made to the uh, Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board uh, by Dr. Craig Swan. We did cover this on the podcast several months ago. It's just it's just worth reminding people why that was put in place, Lydia, and, and uh, fundamentally what what Dr. Swan wanted to see. Well, he wanted to see a, a wholesale improvements in terms of the, the the reach of testing and the way in which testing was was carried out. And he made a number of recommendations, and uh, they mostly haven't been implemented, have they? Well, there was a thirty-six page document uh, that he came up with in April the twenty-second, twenty twenty-two. The IHRB say they are working through the recommendations, um, started to implement them, and they're continuing to work through each of those within the confinements of of their budget budget. And COVID was brought up a lot in my conversation in terms of why certain things hadn't happened as quickly as they ought to have done. But uh, they say that there have been changes to pre-race testing put in place. They are now more intelligence-led. 
and particularly concentrating, as per the recommendations, on trainers with high strike rates and higher profile trainers as well. Uh, and they say that there's also been a, a, an increased focus um, together with the Department for Food, Agriculture and Marine on traceability and that the Memorandum of Understanding uh, with the Veterinary Council has been signed. So they say that th there has been progress in all these areas, though, though clearly recognising that um, there is more to be done within the confines of their budget. They still haven't accounted for some discrepancies, though, have they, between the, the, the testing figures that are, are put out by uh, DAPN, the Department for Agriculture, Food and the Marine, and their own testing figures. I know this is something that has been um, a, a great conversation um, in, amongst social media from those people who, who follow this, this closely. And there is a, a discrepancy in the 2021 figures. Um, I, I'm quoting uh, from the substantiated uh, uh, accounts uh, of mini1602 on Twitter. But the, the point is that uh, th this person is just not plucking figures from the air. They are comparing uh, what uh, Charlie McConnellog has said uh, about the, the figures previously, the testing figures previously, and um, that number was 5987, and comparing, those, those figures were released to the Yorktus, and comparing those to the Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board's uh, testing figures, which are 5952, and they're also, this person online makes the point that there have been three different figures published for 2015. So again, you know, there are, you know, the, the response to uh, the uh, Dr. Craig Swan report has so far been inadequate in this 2021 report they talk about having commissioned an independent audit of their anti-doping strategy which they definitely have and they say he's a renowned Australian vet and global expert and all of those kind of things but it's no good in commissioning it if you're not actually going to follow through and again you know we are now in March 2023 and the fact that they that they haven't implemented the the, the recommendations that they uh, are champing and trumpeting here is 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 not right and their figures you know are in terms of analysis are don't appear to be adding up compared to the to the governmental figures um and then we've also got this the the cctv cameras which obviously the recommendation to have cctv on every race course came about after the viking hall case of 2018 and uh as i understand it they've concluded it on every active race course so far is that right uh, yes, every racehorse that is currently racing, CCTV has been concluded. I spoke to the IHRB about this as well. They said there are two racecourses. They didn't tell me which ones where it was not complete, but those racecourses were not operational at the moment and it would be completed by the time. They did go operational in the summer. I want to, and I would like to know what operational means. And I apply this both to Britain and Ireland. I would like to understand what CCTV coverage actually means in terms of, of the detail, as in, you know, how many, how many cameras, where are they, do, do our race courses strictly comparable, as in, you know, how, how does the, the CCTV coverage at race course X compared with race course Y, you know, how, how is that, that assessed and judged, uh, you know, what are the processes involved, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a sweeping headline, and I would like to know detail. Okay, uh, positives to come out of this. Again, whenever I use the word positives, I always think that I've, I've probably used the wrong word. But anyway, uh, pluses perhaps better to come out as record number of samples have been taken. That's of horses, not of humans. Interestingly, I asked about rider samples, which hadn't really increased. 
again, COVID was used as not as, as an excuse, but COVID was cited as the reason why samples taken from riders, particularly in light of significant problems with the recreational pharmaceuticals in Ireland, uh, hadn't hadn't increased. And, and the thing is, Lydia, they might be trending in the right direction, but we're not going to know because we're not going to find out the 2022 data until deep into this year. So coming back to your original point. Yeah, that, that, that's the absolute point. I mean, you know, this has got several layers of dust on it. And, you know, we're looking back at a sort of, you know, not historic, but a certainly, you know, a rear view landscape. And, you know, the, the what's happening now, we have very little oversight of. You know, it, it isn't good enough. We, we, we need to have much more timely information. There are some other interesting points from a sort of regulatory side of things, aren't they? In that running and riding inquiries, the highest in seven years, improvement in form inquiries, the highest in seven years, running and riding um, um, suspensions are the highest in 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 seven years, uh, for horses that is, um, at starting inquiries, starting procedure inquiries is the highest in, in, in the previous high was in 2016. Uh, there are now 115, and the previous high in 2016 was 52. There were just 13 in 2019. Um, that that the start the starting element I would say is a is a positive, and it's something perhaps that the that British racing needs to look at because our timely starting is not uh, is not good enough. And Ireland, I would always already say, is is a lot better at that. And yet they are very much clearly focusing in on their starting procedures. But does this suggest a, a new regulatory landscape, or that it was a new regulatory in the past tense regulatory landscape in twenty twenty one? Do you think? Well, I think I think you've I think you've got to give the benefit of the doubt. We've been quite critical about a number of things. I think you've got to give the benefit of the doubt that they are trying to move in the in the right direction. I know there was a, a point you wanted to. There's lots in here, by the way. We'd never be able to cover it all, but there's a we point you want. Yeah, whip. Well, well, whip was one of them, and point to points was the other. So take them in whichever order you want. I'll go with whip. I think um, because uh, the number of whip infringements uh, had increased quite markedly. So if you take 2015, there were 160. In 2019, there were 379. Now, I'm going to bypass 2020, but COVID, to 213. In 2021, we were back to 332 whip infringements. Did you talk to the IHRB on whether they, this is going to be a point of focus yeah. for Ireland in the same way as it has, as Paul Nichols would say, to potentially to our detriment in Britain? I did mention that, and uh, I, I got a a fairly neutral response i did didn't appear that that there was any great um pressing concern on this uh, or that it would be something that would be would be would be looked at anytime soon which is running it, it contrary to the direction of travel of most uh authorities if you think of france and germany um and also um scandinavia uh, who are most stringent on this um and of course uh, most uh, notably in britain in in recent months uh, it will be interesting to see what happens uh, when irish riders come over to cheltenham and without the benefit of a of a bedding in period have to uh, abide by britain's new rules now clearly it is part of the role the job of a jockey, a professional jockey, and a, a, an amateur jockey riding at this level to be able to uh, bend their method 
defend the way in which they they ride to whichever jurisdiction they're riding in. That's just an expectation that you would have to have if you are traveling in whatever jurisdiction you're, you're riding to. Otherwise, you know, you become less effective as a rider, too many suspensions, it, it, it doesn't work. Nonetheless, this is going to be quite a, an abrupt change for um, those people. And in particular, I would have thought, um, you know, amateurs, um, certainly the, the figures that the BHA have put out in terms of infringement recently have very much concentrated on amateurs and conditionals. They are the ones that seem to be finding the change the most difficult. So again, I feel like that could be magnified at the Cheltenham Festival. And these figures here uh, might lead you to worry that the gulf between Ireland and uh, Britain might come under the microscope at Cheltenham. Talking about amateurs, point-to-points in Ireland and the average age of point-to-pointer in that country and what it tells us about the, the, the population of horses in that sport. Yeah, I was really interested by this. I think we all knew that, in general, that this was happening. But essentially, the age profile of the horse population um, in point-to-points has changed quite markedly. Um in uh, if we're looking at the um, the uh, certification of hunter certificates um, in 2014-2015, uh, 68.7% of horses were aged between four and six. In 2020 and 2021, that figure went up to 80%. And bearing in mind um, that uh, almost 50% of meetings were, didn't actually take place in that season due to the restrictions that were placed on the amateur sport due to COVID. Um, so... That, that to me is interesting in terms of we, we, the, there's been long been a theory uh, going around and, you know, I think there's enough ev- um, anecdotal evidence to give it, but this is to, to, to abide by it. But this is a statistical data driven evidence that horses that used to be young horses that used to be sorted in commas in terms of their ability on the race course, whether that be in bumpers or novice hurdles or even novice chases are now uh, having that filter process carried out at an earlier stage in point to points and therefore it is more easy at an early stage for people with big checkbooks to come and take the wheat and leave the chaff behind um, of course that doesn't take into account horses as individuals developing at different level different speeds you know at different times of maturity uh, it'll also be interesting to see in terms of the figures um, what this bulge in in younger horses will that carry on through the years as in as they all get one year older will it carry on or or, or where where will these horses go so again whilst it is some information and and substantiates some thoughts that people have had for some time about the landscape I think more um, digging into the detail is required to understand why in British and um, Irish horse racing, and British horse racing particularly feeling this, we don't have the horses, we, we have a dearth of good horses, and is this the factor, one factor? You know, we, we need more information, but this is a little bit more data. Well, not long to go now, and I thought it was high time we checked back in with Barry Connell, to whom we first spoke a month, six weeks or so ago, about the two big chances for the Cheltenham Festival, Marine Nationale and Goodland in the Supreme and the Ballymore, respectively. Now, Barry, uh, on my uh, Sunday show when we were talking at the Dublin Racing Festival, buoyed by the euphoria of the previous day, you were urging all my viewers to, uh, all our viewers, I should say, to, uh, to put them in a double for the Cheltenham Festival. How is your confidence now that we're getting closer and closer? Yeah, uh, pretty much the same. We we um, we have now done our last race course gallop with the uh, with the two horses. We got into Ferry House last Sunday morning, um, and we did a piece of a nice 
our final piece of work on grass, which which couldn't have gone any better. Uh, so we're delighted with that. They'll have one more little breeze, um, and then they'll be on the boat on on Friday. And um, you know, nothing has changed since I spoke to you last in terms of my my uh, level of confidence in 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 their ability um, and in their their um, chances of hopefully winning the races over there. Um, you know, <coughs> maybe to expand a little a little further. I was talking to to one of the local journalists the other day, and I just kind of identified four four things that that a Grade One horse needs in his armory in terms of going to Cheltenham to be give himself the best possible success. And the first of those is 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 pace, um, because it's it's such a tight undulating track that you need to have a horse that travels. Um, travels very strongly and, and 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 both of them do um secondly they need to be need to be very accurate jumpers um which they are um goodland in his two hour races hasn't made a mistake marine made one mistake at the last in fairy house which i think was a, just a lapse in concentration um but i think that box is ticked um we've jumped the famous white hurls there was a few of them in the curl so uh, we popped them. We popped them up over the white hurdles anyway, and didn't seem to phase them. Um, the third thing they need, you need, is temperament, which they have in spades. And um, they're both very chilled and relaxed horses. Um, so I, I, I don't have any concern that you know they're going to um, boil over on the day. And the fourth thing is they, you know, they need need guts and stamina when they come off the bridle. And um, I, I, I think that both definitely. Goodland, uh, as he, you could see from both his maiden hurl win and his grade one, you know, he had to make great on his own both times, um, and he did that really well. And Marine in the Royal Bond, the one the one good thing we found out, maybe it was for luck when he came off the bridle, is is that we didn't know what he'd do when he came off the bridle because he'd never done it before, but when he did come off the bridle, he showed a, a lot of res. res he was very resolute, um, put his head down and battled and galloped away to the line. So, you know, you know I think the attributes, those four attributes, um, uh, I think both of those horses have those um, attributes. And, you know, we're not Chancellor Arm going there with a horse that's won a maiden hurl or a handicap. These are genuine grade one horses that I think are still improving. They're very lightly raced. Um, so barring anything untoward happening between now and then um i think if we get there on the day um i think they're they're the two horses to beat in their respective races owner trainer barry connell best of luck to him and to young jockey michael o'sullivan with marine national in the supreme novices hurdle and good land in the ballymore novices hurdle now i was watching your road to cheltenham program last night lydia and ruby walsh he he launched a very passionate volley against guess who the bha uh, for the publication of the handicap weights uh, for the Cheltenham Festival, uh, which were unveiled uh, at a press conference on Wednesday, but were formulated and put together, if you like, on Tuesday as per the conditions of entry. That's all fine, were it not for the fact that it seems that some people had access to those weights uh, in advance of their official release on wednesday and had access to those on tuesday evening now the british horse racing authority say that 
they were not published anywhere on the British Horse Racing Authority racing admin site, which would have been one source potentially. Um, the jockey club say that they didn't want that information released publicly, though they clearly had access to it in advance of the official unveiling, and somehow uh, that information has been released to certain people. Though not, it has to be said, all the people that were actually there at the press conference, amongst whom um, was me, who was hosting <laughs> the event, and didn't get sight of them till about three minutes before I started. So I'd love to know who managed to get hold of them the night before or the morning of. Yeah, I think essentially the the British Horse Racing Authority need to take take control of situations like this, and there needs to be uh, to to check that all processes are correct. You can't have this time lag where some people have the advantage of of, of this um, of, of this information ahead of the wider public. Now, I realise that there are promotional things that you that that uh, that racecourses would like to do. Certain organisations, yeah, like, like like the Grand National Race, for example, yeah, yeah, absolutely, would like to be well ahead. But there need there needs to be a a formal process, and it needs to be more strictly uh, a, a stricter oversight over it, and it needs to be consistent across all events. And the BHA and whichever racecourse is involved. Uh, need to work much more closely in tandem uh, to make sure that that distasteful things like this don't happen. Because I mean, you know, whilst there are much bigger things, much much bigger things going on to talk about, it still just adds up again in a sort of drip drip effect to the perception that horse racing that people who bet on horse racing are playing with loaded dice, and that and that would be uh, anathema for the sport. That would that would just that kind of undermining of trust the racing and betting racing and betting public is just the end well i have had assurances from both the bha and the jockey club that next year they will go back to the situation that took place last year which was that the event would take place on the same day that the that the weights were actually were actually formalized so there would be almost no lag and of course i think that was the issue the issue last year for the jockey club was that they they got all the information about five minutes before they were due to start and it was just too much for their yeah, their their mechanics to deal with. So that's why they wanted to do it like this. But if you're going to do it like this, then you have to have you know strict strict security over the over the data, don't you? Absolutely, do. I mean, for for example, you, you know, race, um, trainers are held to you know high, to a, a high uh, point of ethics on this, aren't they? I mean, you know, they 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 have to abide by by rules in terms of privileged information. Ditto all participants in the sport. So it's only right that the regulator and racecourses hold themselves to the same high standards. Well, it is a terrific card at Kelso tomorrow. It really is. It's it's worth worthy of all the all the plaudits and and bouquets that have been thrown in its direction. One of the key races is the Moor Battle Hurdle. There's a big bonus on for a horse who can win that, go on and win any race at the Cheltenham Festival. And everyone's co uh, concentrating on Emmett Mullins, of course, because he's done it before with the shunter. But what about Lorna Fowler, who runs Colonel Mustard, who, by the way, served it up to State Man last year in the county hurdle and was only beaten by him and then the rallying First Street. It's a hell of an effort. Great form. Lorna's on the line now, taking a, a horse back to her, her native Scotland. That must be That must be quite special, Lorna, isn't it? Oh, I, I love any excuse to take a horse back to Scotland, but obviously you want to do it for the right reasons and not, not for sentimental ones. But I don't think I've been back. At, I've been back to Perth and Ayr and, and Musselburgh, but I don't think I've been at Kells to back to Kelso in, gosh, 15, 
somewhere between 15 and 20 years, which makes me feel very, very old. Um, you're not. I, I can I can assure you of that. Um, I I do want though to just kind of go back through through the the history books a little bit and draw on some of your memories of riding around Kelso. Was it somewhere you had a lot of success? Yeah, as as a family, it was it was yeah very much a successful track for us. Um, I rode the easiest winner anyone could ever ride there. I rode a horse called jig time who was the most fabulous hunter chaser and mark my brother always rode always and one day he had to sit his exams when it was sort of i was quite an important champion hunter chase there so i got the call up and oh she was magic and yeah i I remember i remember falling in a two mile fell off probably rather than the horse fell a two mile novice chase in in may and the ground was quite hard so I, i remember that on the other side but overall it was it was definitely a very successful and happy track for for the bradburn family and taking two horses of serious caliber to, to Kelso tomorrow as well. I mean, Colonel Mustard is obviously the, the the headline act. He's top weight, but I suppose you have to judge him on what mark he's actually racing off. Do you still think there's a bit of a bit of juice in there? Oh, definitely. I mean, I very much hope so. I mean, we decided at the beginning of the season, really, the owners between Alex Frost and Pete Davis and obviously my husband, Harry Fowler, we thought, you know, we definitely merited a go at at going over fences. And I was actually very pleased with his two runs. I think they were very much learning curves for him. I think he hated the ground at at Fairy House, real tacky ground. No horse likes tacky ground grown i know that but i think it's given him a great education and then uh we thought we'd go for the betfair hurdle and we were very much on course to go for that but obviously with the ground you know he's not a horse that we were going to take on ground too quick so we we sort of re-evalued and you know (laughs) you know the the whole opportunity of kelso followed by cheltenham seemed a very appealing one and i think and i hope he's in a a very good place to to hopefully do both now very much one step at a time and we are our eyes are firmly on the kelso prize but you know he's he's lightly raced this season and he had um he had a schooling hurdle at fairy house probably about three weeks ago now and i say that just hopefully has has been you know what he needed for for, for coming into tomorrow you run a, a nicely bred horse called banjaxed in the in the graded novice hurdle what's the thinking behind bringing him over um Banjax, oh, Banjax is great. He's the the thinking really is we ran him in his maiden hurdle thinking we thought he wanted or I thought like a fool he wanted um much softer ground and we ran him in the bumper at Fairy House um back in January and to be honest that no, was a very good race don't get me wrong and it was won by a very good horse but um I was a bit disappointed and I think he was just not strong enough to handle that. It was really soft ground that day. And then we really just, he was in good form. I wanted to get him out, made sense to then go over hurdles. Um, he, he probably ran above plenty people's expectations in the maiden hurdle and he really enjoyed it. And you can really carry on running in maiden hurdles or why not have a go in a graded race? And then... Then, then we thought, well, Kelso's there. I think two mile two will suit him, and I think it's a good opportunity to have a go. And I think he will definitely improve 
mentally more than anything from from Navin, and he has. There's, there's no doubt he's more switched on from that. Uh, how good he is, I, I don't know yet. That's the truth. Um, I will find out a lot more tomorrow, but you know, I don't feel a huge amount of pressure because um, we want him to go and run his best race, and I think he'll run a good race, but we'll just have to see where that is in respect to the others. Lydia, full marks to Kelso Racecourse. What an absolutely cracking card they've got on Saturday afternoon. It's uh, fully deserving of its star billing on ITV, which has rather given Newbury the bum's rush. It really does. I mean, it, it does show you what you can do. I mean, what, one of the, the received uh, opinions is that at any race meeting that is crouching in the immediate shadow of the Cheltenham Festival has got no way in which to make its mark. Well, Kelso, I think, disproves that theory uh, by, make, be, by being very sure what level of horse that you are attempting to attract, making sure that your races fit in to the immediate calendar around there so that you're more likely to be able to get a good field of runners. Um, and they have managed to achieve, and obviously by putting in attractive prize money to back all of those sensible things up, you end up with a field size of 16 for the more battle hurdle. I mean, you know, that, that is excellent. For the Premier Novices hurdle, 11 going to post, um, or hopefully they are, um, provided nothing goes wrong between it now and then um the two and a half mile handicap hurdle 10 runners there um you know you'd have had galore running in the premier chase you know but for the unfortunate injury he picked up from falling at the last last time um but again there are five runners there and it's quite a, an interesting race but but the, the most interesting races are those three first three ones that i mentioned and they are competitive and they are good quality and they are going to be very very good viewing indeed they are. I'm really looking forward to seeing McTeague and Colonel Mustard and Deer Mark and Teddy Blue all going head to head in the Moor Battle Hurdle, which has been completely re revivified since the addition of a bonus, some money and and a handicap. Being a handicap has helped. Um, yeah, that, uh, yeah that, it has. That, and then there's lessons to be learned, aren't there? There definitely are. But the conditions race, the novice hurdle has held up really well, too. So um, props to Kelso Racecourse. Well, if you were with me on the podcast yesterday, you'll have been um, hearing Rishi Passad, and at the very end of the episode, I talked to him about his new role as a trustee of the Racing Foundation. And the Racing Foundation are funding a project at the moment to improve racecourse accessibility for those with disabilities. I'm joined now by uh, Jacob Pritchard-Webb, who has been uh, using a wheelchair since a fall that uh, left him paralysed in France uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, Jacob is, is with me now. And Jacob, you have used quite a bit of time to, to campaign for better access for, for wheelchair users uh, and others with disabilities on British racecourses for, for a little while. Just tell me why this is a, a fairly seismic moment. I got involved um, with the RCA on this last year, having been to a couple of racecourses uh, in 2021 as a just as a spectator and as a fan and realising that not all race courses um, were ideal for me in, in, in from an accessibility point of view. So to then be able to be, be part of this project, which, like you say, is is kind of a seismic break in, in our sport because, as we were saying off the air, I don't think anything like this has been done before at all. So I think it's it's a great step forward. We we hold racing in a very high regard in this country as one of the top sports. And I think it's a brilliant thing that this project has been set underway to really push it out there with 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 some of the top sports like football and cricket who who are already having these kinds of uh, checks and projects done. 
unless you are a wheelchair user or unless you have a disability that, that precludes you from getting about the place as others might, it's very difficult to, to understand exactly where where the, the, the pinch points are really for, for you and, and, and where the frustrations manifest themselves most greatly when you're trying to move around a sports venue or a, or a race course. What, what have you found? What have been your, your, your main experiences in that regard? Yeah, you're right. I think these a lot of the race courses are obviously very old. Um, they were they were built with with you know quite frankly not us in mind, which you know you can't blame them for. That uh, they were it was done a long time ago, but times are changing, and there there were definitely growing trends throughout our audits that we that were done last year. Um, hearing loops, for example, um, we should also stress that. It wasn't just from a wheelchair point of view. We were trying to cover all areas of disability. Absolutely. Um, so, so no, no race courses that we came across really had any hearing loops. And, and I can tell you that from the audits now, a, a large number of them have, have got back in touch and are starting to install these in the race courses. Um, for for blind and partially sighted people, um, font and colouring of, of signs um, from an accessible point of view, a good colour contrast uh, on signage of menus and, and welcoming uh, signs was a thing that we addressed, um, along with colour contrast in toilets. Again, if you're a partially sighted people and the handles are white upon white, you, you don't want to be... Um, you know, trying to if you're if you're someone who who struggles to see, kind of using their hand on dirty surfaces in the toilet. Whereas if it was a blue handle on a on a white wall, for example, it'd be a lot easier for them. So we were kind of covering all areas. Disabled viewing platforms were they easy to get through? Were they being abused um, by by people who didn't need to use them? So it was all from an experience point of view, and we kind of um, tried to act. Um, look at all these areas from how it was affecting us uh, users on a on, on a race course and um, I think the the reports that were given back were um, were taken with with great regard and, and with a lot of interest and, and we're already having really good uh, feedback from them. Jacob Pritchard Webb there with news of the latest developments funded by the Racing Foundation to improve accessibility on British racecourses. Lydia Hislop is still with me. And Lydia, do you have some advice for us today or for the weekend, Kelso or elsewhere? What are you going to do? Uh, yes, I have got a tip for you and I am going to go with Teddy Blue. You've already mentioned him. Oh, yes, I like him. Yeah, I think he's got a got a, a really good chance. Uh, Colleen Quinn is on board for Gary Moore. Um, he is running uh, in the Moore Battle Handicap Hurdle, and I think he's got a very good chance. So it's Teddy Blue um, in the... I'm just trying to look at what time it is. The 1.50 at Kelso on Saturday. Lydia, thanks so much. That was Friday, March the 3rd. We will see you again after the weekend. Bye for now. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.